Thank you very much, Peter, for a very uh, stimulating presentation there. I'm going to follow up uh, by talking about obstructive sleep apnea alternative therapies. And uh, the prior presentation was a very nice segue into what I'm going to present here today. I'm in uh, San Diego. Uh, by way of disclosure, I have some uh, medical education income from Merck and from Levanova, and ResMed has provided a philanthropic donation to UC San Diego. I will point out we've done some research with uh, Signifier Medical, but I'm not principal investigator and I've received no personal income from them to date. Um, I'd like to start by just talking about the global prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea. This is a paper that we published last year in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine, which used some estimates based on the literature and suggested there are up to 1 billion people worldwide that have obstructive sleep apnea. If you use a very stringent criteria and say moderate to severe, it's up to half a billion. If you look at the milder cases, it's probably close to 1 billion people worldwide with obstructive sleep apnea. So the magnitude of the problem and the magnitude of the opportunity is massive. Many people are quite dismissive of CPAP. They say, oh, CPAP doesn't work. And I, I kind of talk out of both sides of my mouth on that one. On the one hand, I think CPAP adherence is pretty good. On the other hand, there is a major opportunity for alternative therapies, as we'll discuss. This is a paper we published in CHEST two years ago, looking on the y-axis here at cumulative percentage of patients, and the x-axis here is days to achieve Medicare adherence. This is drawn from about 137 million nights of data. It's a big data analysis. And you can see that usual care, the usual care gets about 70% uh, adherence. And so that's really quite good compared to other chronic medical therapies. If you use modern technology like patient engagement type software, you can get up to 87% adherence using modern technology. Now to get into the study, you had to get a CPAP machine. You had to be willing to get that. You had to participate uh, on the cloud. Uh, to get on there for at least one hour of use. And so these data may not generalize to, to everybody. And I frequently see patients who either refuse testing or refuse a uh, to come to see me because they uh, would prefer an alternative treatment. And those sort of patients would never come to fruition in this type of study. Peter Sestuli, who just spoke, also looked at a, a very large cohort of patients, 2.6 million patients, using a similar type analysis off the cloud and suggested about 75% adherence there, which is really quite good as far as uh, CPAP's concerned. So my take home message so far is that CPAP adherence is pretty good. It really blows away most other chronic medical therapies. If you look at inhaler use in asthma or uh, anticonvulsant use in epilepsy or something, CPAP is really quite good, even though we recognize there is an opportunity here. And so we still need new treatments for some patients. The patients who are probably the, the least well-served uh, with CPAP are the ones who have either snoring or mild to moderate sleep apnea. And so this is an editorial that we published a few months ago in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine entitled, Why Do We Sometimes Ignore the Chief Complaint in Patients Evaluated for Obstructive Sleep Apnea? And the point here is that there are a large number of patients with either snoring or sleep apnea who may not be amenable to CPAP. In some cases they are, but, but not always. The apnea hypopnea index, as Peter just said, is not a great metric of patient reported outcomes. It's a very loose predictor of sleepiness or, or quality of life. And it doesn't predict consequences very well either. And often we'll make treatment decisions about CPAP or not based on the apnea hypopnea index because we don't have a lot else to offer at least uh, uh, for some of those patients. The other thing I will say is giving a patient reassurance for their chief complaint is not common in other medical conditions. So a patient comes in saying, doctor, I need help, I'm snoring. And we tell them, oh, you don't have sleep apnea, go, go away. And obviously that's not addressing their chief complaint. And the joke I always say is if somebody comes in short of breath, 
I don't rule out asthma and say you're not short of breath, go, go away. It's the same sort of by analogy as what we're doing in many cases. Somebody comes in with snoring or with sleepiness and we say you don't have sleep apnea and, and we don't really address their concern. So as Peter uh, already mentioned, there are multiple mechanisms underlying sleep apnea. A one-size-fits-all approach is probably not adequate. So there likely be multiple mechanistic pathways which we need to guide an individualized therapy. Patients don't all get sleep apnea for the same reason in terms of mechanism, and they vary in their clinical expression. We use the word endotype to talk about mechanism, and we use the word phenotype to talk about clinical expression. So in terms of the various mechanisms you've already heard about, we won't get into some of the details today, but suffice it to say that pharyngeal dilator muscle control is one that's been near and dear to my heart for some time. Uh, one muscle is the genia glossus, which is the substance of the tongue. For the 23 pairs of muscles in the upper airway, the genia glossus is one that's large and representative of other muscles, but certainly not the only muscle. But just to uh, convince you that that muscle is important, I'll show you some work from Amy Jordan, who's now back in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, and she followed up on Magda Yunus's observation up in Winnipeg that most sleep apnea patients have some periods of stable breathing. Uh, she measured, and she wanted to know why. Why do they spontaneously stabilize breathing sometimes? And uh, she measured the genie glossus electromyogram, the tensor palatini electromyogram, and expiratory lung volume and other factors. The genie glossus activity was invariably high during periods of stable breathing, and no other variable was predictive. So if genie glossus activity was high, breathing was stable, if genoglossus activity was low, there was repetitive apnea, and no other variable was predictive. And so we've developed a concept that the genoglossus is both necessary and sufficient to stabilize breathing spontaneously in sleep apnea. When something stimulates the muscle or adequately activates the muscle, it will stabilize breathing. So we wondered why. <clears throat> there is a, a reflex called the negative pressure reflex. On the y-axis here is the genoglossus electromyogram, and the x-axis here is epiglottic pressure, pressure at the back of the throat. You can see if you suck on the airway, more negative pressure, the genoglossus will activate. This is referred to as the negative pressure reflex. These two individuals have identical anatomy. Their critical pressure, which is an index of anatomy, is the same in these two individuals within the error of measurement of the test. This person has a robust reflex because when you suck on their airway, the genoglossus activates robustly. Whereas in this person, their reflex is quite deficient and as a result, we would argue this person has severe sleep apnea and this person is perfectly healthy. And at least in these two individuals, the upper airway muscles are perhaps important in determining who does or doesn't have sleep apnea. So there have been various different approaches to trying to activate these muscles. People have tried various drugs of various kinds and there's some exciting work happening there. People have tried electrical stimulation as well. There's been some work out of Brazil on uh, oropharyngeal exercises for patients with moderate sleep apnea. And Geraldo Lorenzi Filo is the uh, senior author in this work. They're control individuals on the left, therapy individuals on the right who got muscle training exercises. You can see the apnea hypopnea index here on the y-axis that does not change in the control group after three months of control therapy. But you can see a nice reduction in sleep apnea severity with these upper airway muscle exercises uh, conducted here. There's some patients that get a very nice reduction there are one or two outliers that go in the wrong direction, but it's a fairly satisfactory improvement, although still some residual apnea, uh, at least in some individuals. And just to show you the variability in this relationship, this is the negative pressure reflex once again. The y-axis here, this is genoglossus electromyogram. X-axis here is epiglottic pressure. Some people have a robust reflex. 
Some people have almost no reflex and all gradations in between. If we get, just gave a therapy willy-nilly and just tried to increase activity in everybody, it's likely to work in some individuals, perhaps more so than in others. This guy, Mike Stankino, is in my lab as well, who did some work on this uh, during stable sleep. He looked at the genie glossus on the y-axis here and different conditions on the x-axis here during stable sleep. He looked at mechanoreceptors, or so-called pressure receptors here, or chemoreceptors, which are CO2 receptors here. You can see lots of different stimuli really don't do much, but when you combine various stimuli, combine carbon dioxide and combine resistive loading, which is a way of activating these pressure receptors, you get more than a doubling of genioglossus activity during stable sleep. This has led us to the conclusion that the operating muscles can respond to endogenous stimuli if provided in sufficient magnitude and for adequate duration. And remember, we said the genioglossus was necessary and sufficient to stabilize breathing. So we believe, based on these data, that uh, the genioglossus may be a good therapeutic target, at least in some individuals. We did some work in this as well when I was uh, at the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. It was published in the Journal of Applied Physiology in 2011, which is when I last got a haircut. Here's the sensory motor function of the upper airway muscles and respiratory sensory processing in untreated sleep apnea. We looked at tongue protrusion force here on the y-axis, control individuals in sleep apnea. You can see the force was increased in people with sleep apnea as compared to controls. So it's not that the muscle is weak. In fact, it's uh, trained here and the muscle force is increased. What's more interesting here is time to task failure, which is a measure of endurance. And back, this is 10 years ago now, we thought endurance might be a problem because in sleep apnea, you can see a marked reduction in endurance here or time to task failure in sleep apnea patients as compared to controls. So I kind of had that tucked away in the back of my head when I met um, Anshul and some of his colleagues and they started uh, teaching me about their uh, ideas. One other piece of data here to support the uh, importance of upper airway muscles and that was looking at enhanced upper airway muscle responsiveness this is a distinct feature of overweight versus obese with and without sleep apnea. What are we talking about here? Here's individuals with uh, sleep apnea with uh, a body mass index over 25, that is overweight. Here, nor, uh, people without sleep apnea who are controls. Here are people without sleep apnea who are overweight. So what's different about the people who are overweight without sleep apnea compared to the people who are overweight with sleep apnea? The most distinct difference here is the difference in upper airway muscle response. The robust muscle activity seen in these overweight people uh, was potentially protecting them from sleep apnea, whereas a more deficient upper airway muscle response was seen in those with sleep apnea. Again, suggesting perhaps the upper airway muscles are culprit underlying sleep apnea in some cases. So the take home message so far is that upper airway muscles help to explain why some obese people have sleep apnea and some do not. So that led us to this uh, discussion about uh, this electrical stimulation. This is transoral neuromuscular electrical stimulation for treatment of sleep disorder breathing. Looking at daytime therapy, 20 minutes per day uh, for six weeks with treatment of snoring and mild sleep apnea. This was a study done in London uh, by uh, Dr. Kateja. Uh, we've been uh, collaborating with a group there that work with Anshul and others. It's a London teaching hospital. You can see the protocol here at two weeks and at six weeks we got uh, the treatment phase completed. These were patients with mild uh, sleep apnea with an apnea hypopnea index between five and 15 events per hour. Uh, you can see here the characteristics of these individuals. They're typical patients with sleep apnea. These, uh, on average, they're overweight, but not uh, by and large obese. 
you can see here some uh, improvements. And so you hear the pre-therapy apnea hypopnea index, the post-therapy apnea hypopnea index, you see a nice reduction. We're not talking about severe sleep apnea here. This is patients with mild sleep apnea, a nice improvement into what's considered normal range here. If you look at the oxygen desaturation index, that also improves from uh, 8.6 desaturations per hour down to 4.3. You can see the upward sleeping score measure of sleeping is also improving, everything going the right direction here. And uh, really quite a, a, a reassuring uh, evidence that things are headed the right way with this muscle training exercise. You can see the side effects are quite modest. Some people get some salivation or tongue discomfort. You can see those things attenuate over time as well. Week one, week two, week three, down to week six. The reported complaints in week one have by and large gone away in week six. And so the side effects here are quite modest. So we've been doing as well some mechanistic work and the note to self is don't sign up for a study that involves breath to breath analysis during a, a national pandemic or a global pandemic. Uh, but we've been working away, Brandon Noakes and Jeremy Orr and others have been working away uh, Bob Owens is the principal investigator on this study. So this is a mechanistic study with polysomnography and objective tongue function assessment done in 20 individuals of various races and various ethnicities. And uh, by and large, the apnea hypopnea index uh, changes were, were somewhat variable in our study. Uh, here's before and after. You can see the apnea hypopnea index changes having some variability. Some patients improve nicely. This individual was an outlier. He increased a lot, but in fact, it turned out he wasn't using the therapy at all. And so we were tempted to throw him out, but I thought that wouldn't be kosher. So we've left him in for now, although he's going in the wrong direction and wasn't using treatment. So uh, a little bit frustrating, but that's the reality. Uh, you can see, at least in the ones who responded, which wasn't everybody, but in those that responded, you can see an apnea index improvement. And the question is why? Short answer is I don't know, but the endurance uh, measurements that I mentioned before we're actually seeming to benefit. Here's tongue endurance before and after. You can see a statistically significant improvement in um, tongue endurance with uh, treatment here. What would have been nice is if we could say that improvement in tongue endurance was a highly correlated with the changes in apnea hypopnetics. I can't say that yet. We're still analyzing the data, but uh, thus far, at least tongue endurance is going in the right direction. And remember, tongue endurance was what we saw was impaired in sleep apnea previously. Here's changes in tongue endurance. You can see almost everybody going in the right direction with one or two exceptions. Tongue protrusion force, remember we said it was preserved in sleep apnea before and uh, it really didn't change with therapy here. And uh, across the board, it was pretty stable. Again, not surprising, that's not the problem in sleep apnea. And so uh, we didn't think we'd be improving something that wasn't there. And just to prove I didn't know how to spell the word strength, I put it down here, even though it's misspelled here, I was unable to fix that in time. Okay, so to summarize, I'll say mild sleep apnea may need a different uh, treatment paradigm than what's currently being done. Giving CPAP to all of them, I think, has quite mixed success, at least clinically. Therapies addressing specific pathophysiological endotypes are likely to be beneficial for more precision therapy. Having an array of different choices of treatment is certainly worthwhile. And new therapy modalities need to have a low burden uh, for patients. I think giving a very aggressive treatment for somebody who's got fairly mild disease is hard to justify. And so having something with a low burden has some value. And this daytime electrical stimulation presents a promising uh, precision tool in management of sleep disorder breathing. I'll say clinical and me me mechanistic data here are evolving.